If you would please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Our text will be verses 12, 13, and 14. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature, but to live, to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We have been looking at the doctrine of original sin. And just by way of brief review, we've seen that there are five components uh, that make up the doctrine of original sin. First of all, everyone is afflicted by original sin. And as much as people may find this offensive, it is in fact a, a wonderfully liberating reality that we are all equal. We are all sinners. There aren't people who are better than others. We are all infected by original sin. Secondly, we come into the world this way. It's hardwired into us. Thirdly, we must call these uh, propensities, if you wish, sinful. That is to say, there is a moral component to our affliction. Um, number four, we were not originally this way. And I think this is much more important than people realize. We've looked at it. We believe in the original goodness of creation. It was a reflection of the goodness of the creator. And more specifically, we hold to the goodness of humanity. In the various confessions of the church over the centuries, when talking about original sin, they also speak of original righteousness. And the key to this is that goodness came before sin, before evil. Another important component of this, though, is that we are made in the image of God. Even though we are sinners, we still bear the image of God. And number five, the last part, is that the only way out of this problem, this affliction, is divine intervention. That is grace. Unfortunately, as we've seen the past few weeks, people tend to have a faulty view of what salvation is, what it means to get saved, if you wish. Oftentimes, they speak of specific sins. What we learn from original sin is that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The condition precedes the action. Sins are not simply actions, but anything that we do that is sinful is preceded by the fact, the condition, that we are in fact sinners. And the decline of focusing on the doctrine of original sin has resulted in Christians oftentimes focusing more on the action rather than the condition. And in evangelizing and seeking to spread the good news, they have forgotten to mention the reality that we are born into this world as sinners. Instead, they focus on specific sins. Do you have a problem with addiction? Do you have a problem with this? Um, why don't you confess this sin and give your life to Jesus? I would say that there's nothing wrong with that, but underlying it is the reality that we are the children of Adam and Eve. The work of the Lord Jesus redeems us, forgives our condition of being sinners. Um, as I said before, on some level I would almost say, forget the sins, the, the specific sins, or the life of sin. Rather look at the condition that we are because of original sin, we are sinners. Again, as I mentioned, it is almost as though if a person could be born into this world and never sin, 
they would still be contaminated by original sin and be in need of redemption. The story that the modern world tells us is quite different from this. First of all, it says that we do not all share the same affliction. Um, In other words, the modern world does not see people as equal. That's why they're fighting for equality, because they don't have this inherent belief that we are, in fact, all equal. We're all equally guilty before God. We're all sinners. Secondly, the modern world tells us that we are born innocent and then we are corrupted by others. And so we have the campaigns to root out the corrupting aspects of society, whether it be individuals or institutions or various influences. And in many ways, I would argue that the modern struggle for social justice is based on the fundamental belief that people are born innocent but have become corrupted and therefore the corrupting factors must be dealt with. The third thing, uh, aspect of the modern view is that morality is not involved. If, in fact, we are born innocent and later corrupted, are we, in fact, the ones to blame? Tied into this is what we looked at with regard to determinism, that there are various views of determinism, uh, almost a cause and effect, but nature versus nurture type of thing. So biological determinism, cultural determinism, uh, environmental determinism, goes on and on. As I mentioned, the most recent is technological determinism, that you act the way you do because of the technologies that surround you. I'm not completely opposed to this idea that outside things, in fact, do influence us and affect us. They, they affect our development as human beings. Okay. And if you doubt this, the next time you go to the doctor and have to fill out the forms when they ask you about your family's medical history, then you begin to have a sense that, yes, there is a connection between what has come before you and your present condition. I think we would all agree that we are shaped, not necessarily determined, but shaped by family, surroundings, culture, experiences, the language or languages that we speak, uh, and the tools that we use. As a result, if we're not careful, morality becomes a non-issue. It's not my fault. Okay? It is the fault of those who came before me. Who is to say that what I did was right or wrong in the first place? If, in fact, I'm simply the victim of determinism, the things that have shaped my life. Strangely enough, because we are born in the image of God, we have an innate sense that there are things that are right and things that are wrong. But rather than looking at ourselves, we tend to focus at others and become moralistic and judgmental and begin to condemn institutions, particularly in the 20th and 21st century, as the social justice movement grows. Fourthly, it is believed in the modern world that this is the natural state of man. And this is really important because the biblical view tells us that man was born good, and then fell into sin and became sinful. Um, The good is not something that we are trying to create or capture. It is found instead in the creator, the one who made us in his image. And lastly, the search for solutions is on, and that's what the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries seem to be all about. And all of these searches have no appeal at all to divine grace. It is something that we as human beings will try to achieve on our own. As I said last week, I find myself being somewhat defensive at this point, in part because I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
it is folly to imagine that there are no benefits that we have received from various solutions, whether it be a better diet, uh, an exercise regimen, medicines, medical procedures. And I think Butch is, is living testimony to the wonders of modern medicine. However, I think if I went a step further and spoke about psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, things having to do with one's psyche, then people begin to get nervous. I think with everything there is to be caution. There's always to be caution. But we should recognize the reality that none of these things can in fact cure the condition of being sinners, of original sin. They may help with the symptoms. They may bring us a measure of physical, emotional, mental, and emotional, and uh, yeah, mental health or relief. And we should thank God for them. But the condition of being a sinner cannot be cured by any of these. Simone Weil, I mentioned last week, wrote, Humanism was not wrong in thinking that truth, beauty, liberty, and equality are of infinite value. It is tragically wrong in thinking that man can get them for himself without grace. Apart from grace, the notion of redemption is expanded now to go from health, you know, physical health, and then we begin to talk about emotional health and mental health, and now it is expanded to the idea of salvation, and not simply for the individual, but for humanity. The 20th century gives testimony to this if we would see it from a particular point of view. We see genocide being practiced in the guise of purifying or saving the human race from those factors which infect it. If we can get rid of these individuals, then humanity will be on the path to perfection. I think the, the one that comes to mind is Hitler with his final solution to the Jewish problem. That actually came four years after his final solution to the gypsy problem. You know, get rid of the gypsies and then the German people will better, be better off. And then get rid of the Jews and we'll be better off. And it goes on and on. I'm more familiar with the more recent genocide in Cambodia, the killing fields, in which anyone who had non-Cambodian blood, if you were of mixed race, they killed you because you were a contaminating factor and they wanted to get back to year zero. They wanted to start all over again. And to do that, you have to get rid of all these contaminating factors. They all seem to have laudable goals, but in fact, they are pseudo-redemptive movements. Paul tells us in Romans 5, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, Will anyone die for a righteous man, though a good man, might, someone might possibly dare to die? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, in the modern world, we don't want the death of Jesus for redemption. Others must die in order to redeem humanity. But the scripture tells us that God sent his son who gave his life that in fact humanity might be redeemed from its sinful condition. And it's all rooted in grace. We cannot forget that. Bear with me as I read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead 
in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were objects of, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised up, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let's get this straight. We are born into this world as sinners in need of redemption. Then by God's grace and God's grace alone, God redeems us. This includes curing us and redeeming us, ridding us of original sin. Now what? Now that we have been cured, what are we to do? Well, we find it here in our text. Let me read it again to you. Follow along if you would. Romans 8, verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Or look at verse number 13. And in this we see five things. First of all, the people who are addressed. You, brothers... Secondly, a duty is presented to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Number three, the how of the matter, by the spirit. Then fourthly, there is a conditional nature, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body. And fifthly, there is a promise, you will live. I want to consider each of these briefly and hopefully open the door for what we will look at in the coming Sundays. First of all, the people addressed. Paul is writing, he is speaking to believers, that is those who have been redeemed, for whom, in verse number one, there is no condemnation, the condemnation that original sin brings. We need to go back to the beginning of the chapter to have a better sense of this and a fuller understanding. So again, bear with me. Let's begin reading in verse number one, and I'll read through verse 11. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what their nature desires, or that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 
Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. So the brothers that Paul is addressing are now, it's sort of, uh, the qualities are listed here. First of all, that there, are, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that the Spirit of God lives in the brothers, those who are the people of God. Christ is in you, and the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. When you put this all together, the believer is one who has been pardoned from condemnation, brought about by original sin. The believer is one who is now alive in Christ Jesus. He was dead, she was dead, but now they are alive. The believer is one who was dead, but now the Spirit lives in him or her. You will notice that in creation, God breathed into Adam the breath of life. So it is in Christ that the Spirit is breathed into us and He gives us life. The believer is one who is now alive. The one who raised Jesus from the dead has raised us from the dead. We were dead in transgressions and sins, Paul tells the Ephesians. And now we have been given life. And simply put, this is amazing. But this is what it means to be a child of God. These are the people that Paul is addressing. So those are the people he's speaking to. Secondly, the duty that he presents to them to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now that we are the children of God, now that we have been given new life, born again, God has breathed into us his spirit, what are we to do? Do we have any responsibilities? Yes, we are to put to death the misdeeds of the body. This is something Paul told the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. But there, Paul then gives a partial list. Sexual immorality, purity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. In Galatians, Paul, in fact, gives us a metaphor for how we are to put these things to death. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So we are, put, we are to put these to death. The misdeeds of the body, the earthly nature, the sinful nature. Now, one thing should become clear here, and that is that the body is seen as that corruption and depravity of our natures. It is the seat and instrument of sin in our lives, if you wish. Our members are servants of unrighteousness. But I think we need to be clear about something, that what Paul intends is what is referred to as a metonymy. That is a figure of speech that replaces the name of a thing with something, the name of something which is closely related to it. So let me give you some examples. Um, let me give you a hand. It means let me help you. I, I, I don't literally mean let me take my hand and give it to you. Or for the Shakespeare aficionados among us, from Julius Caesar, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Mark Anthony is not asking for their ears. He's asking that they would pay attention. This is metonymy. And I think everyone understands. When you say that, 
You know, when we hear that the White House issued a press release, we don't think that the building itself did that. It's the people who are working in it. So in the same way, I want us to be careful. Without question, our bodies trip us up left and right. But we should not imagine that that is the only place where the problem lies. Otherwise, we, we take a very modern and very materialistic view of the body. It's much more than that. So how are we going to do this? We've been given new life. How are we now going to put to death these terrible things that we are tempted to do? Well, we are told that it is by the Spirit. You see, because there's at least a double danger when we read verse number 13. On the one hand, we might imagine that we can do this on our own. On the other hand, we might despair that we can do it at all. With regard to the first, living when and where we do in the modern world, we find allies in various modern programs and regimes um, that help us deal with various afflictions. And I would say some of them do so quite successfully, particularly programs that deal with addiction, for example, a 12-step program. So whether the issue is physical health, emotional health, mental health, whatever, um, there are things that can help us deal with this. But as Simone Weil put it, without grace. Paul is very clear, this we cannot do on our own. It is the Spirit of God who is working in us. And if you go through Romans chapter 8, you will hear the Spirit referred to as the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit that raised Jesus, the Spirit of adoption. The Spirit is pretty busy and has been as he works in our lives. As we see in creation, we see in redemption. The Spirit of God is breathed into us and gives us life. It is by his work in us, by God's grace, we can put to death the misdeeds of the body. The fourth thing we see here is the conditional nature of the matter. If you put to death the misdeeds of the body. This is the second half of the verse, verse number 13. But it is a conditional proposition, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body. And the way that this is done in Greek, there are at least two possibilities. The first is that there is complete uncertainty as to whether or not this could ever happen. Um, so, you know, well, for something to happen, it is absolutely necessary that, that the other things happen. So, if I say, if I am here tomorrow, I will do such and such, it means I must be here tomorrow in order for that to happen. But we don't know, in fact, that I will be here. But this is not how Paul writes it here in verse number 13. Rather, he speaks of certainty. The connection between the things spoken of. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In this regard, I think we could think of the analogy of if you, on some level, a limited level, when the doctor tells you, tells you if you take this medicine, you will get better. So in the same way, we must deal with these things the misdeeds of the body, and we will have life. This is the fifth thing, the promise. You will live. Now, we should not imagine that Paul is saying, if you do good things, then you get to live. Okay? Um, we need to remember it is the Spirit who lives in us, who works through us. In the same way that we forgive because we have been forgiven, we will live because we have been given new life. 
And this is demonstrated in the reality that we put to death the misdeeds of the body. And in verse number 13, the choice is quite clear. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul continues, however, in verse number 14, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So we have been given new life. We have been cured. We have been set free from the condemnation of original sin. And what are we to do now? It is our duty to put to death the misdeeds of the body. What does this mean? What does it mean to put it to death? Well, we'll spend the next few weeks looking at this, but let me just say here at the outset that in the same way, if you kill anything, if you put something to death, you take away its strength, its power, its vigor. You take away, you cut off its source, in some cases of oxygen, but you somehow restrict it and it becomes lifeless after a period of time. We have been set free from the condemnation of sin, yet we sin. We struggle with indwelling sin. And again, I hope that in the weeks to come to look at this. The question comes up, Damon, how is it that we have been freed from the condemnation of sin, yet we struggle and are supposed to struggle against sin? How is it that we are to put to death the misdeeds of the body? Well, the Lord willing, this is what we will look at in the weeks to come. And may God, by his grace, give us wisdom and by his spirit who lives in us, work through us, that we might put to death the misdeeds of the body. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a place and time in which we are tempted to think that we're not that bad. And that if we have done anything bad, it's because of our parents, our neighbors, our schoolmates, our physical ailments. Everybody's fault but our own. But more than that, we fail to recognize that we were not innocent when we were born into this world. We are the children of Adam, children of sin. And yet amazingly, in your grace, you sent your son to be a sacrifice, to cure us, to free us from the condemnation of sin. May we rejoice in this and be grateful. At the same time, realize that the battle is not done. In many ways, it's just begun. Now that we have gone from death to life, in life there is a struggle. A struggle against those things that would seek to kill us once again. I thank you that we are not alone in the struggle. We have each other to encourage and correct. But more than that, we have your spirit the Spirit of the Lord Jesus who lives in us. You have breathed into us the breath of life. May we look to him moment by moment for strength, for guidance as we walk through this world.
We thank you for your great love for us. We see that demonstrated in the fact that you've brought us together today. We see it demonstrated in the celebration of birthdays for Ben, for Jason, and others. Thank you for your love, how amazing it is. Now as we leave this place, we will go out into the world again. We'll be apart from one another, but may we remember to pray for one another. And may we remember who we are. We are the children of God who have the Spirit of God. May your Spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.